welcome to the Wiley Society Executive Update Series. I'm Bill DeLuise. In today's episode, we're talking about trends in the research library community. This overview includes audio content from the Wiley Society Executive Seminar, held in October 2015 and recorded at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in front of a live audience. Today, we're sharing the observations of the speakers at that event specialists in research communications talking about the evolving role of the research library and the impact of that evolution on the scholarly and scientific communications landscape. Before we dive into the specifics, though, we thought it would be useful to begin with a description of the type of organization that we'll mostly be talking about today. This is Kimberly Armstrong. Kim is the Deputy Director of the Committee for Institutional Cooperation's Center for Library Initiatives. Kim is describing the consortia of universities she represents but the description could work equally well for the type of organization more broadly that we'll spend the next few minutes talking about. My remarks today do not represent sort of sort of downstream institutions that are not heavily research focused. So um, how we look at trending lines for funding, the challenges of support that we have for the dis multidisciplinary comprehensive university are a little bit different than um, mid-level institutions. We feel like we are um, the primary market for academic published research. We both create it um, and we buy a lot of it too and we use a lot of it. So we just have humongous infrastructure. In terms of size, the universities that Kim represents support over $232 million in libraries and $10 billion in funded research overall. So we're talking about large research universities with a huge student population, which are, to borrow Kim's phrase, big content consumers. At our institutions, content's like infrastructure. Content is like electricity and plumbing at our universities. It has to be there. We are in service of a whole bunch of undergraduates, 597,000 as a matter of fact, and we're in the service of that $10.2 billion in funded research. Things have to be available to them, to the researcher, to the learner, to the teacher when they are ready to use it. We are record keepers. Given how important content is here, and considering the sums of money at play, you might assume that funding access to this information isn't the issue. That's not quite the case. Here, Kent Anderson describes the challenges facing library funding. Kent presented as the publisher of science in its portfolio of journals. He's since launched an independent publishing consultancy. There's not enough funding in the system to support libraries, to support researchers, to support publication, to support education. Libraries are getting to have about half the the share of university budgets that they did in 1980. It's been a, an eroding uh, source. Kim made the same point, citing many of the same data. She also offered this story. Libraries are increasingly less, um, less of a picture, and a physical picture in the university. And that doesn't mean we're less important. Actually, when you survey faculty, you find that they still love the library, they still need us. They may not understand everything we do now because they're not always sure where are their content's coming from because it's on the internet. Um, but they still need our services. They still need our services for their students. And they still need the content that, that comes to them to support their research and teaching endeavors. So um, to the matter, what's happening at the CIC? And when I got asked to do this talk, um, I called up a bunch of my, my buddies who are collection officers at these places, and I would say our collection individually, um, our collection budgets range from something like $10 million to $25 million annually. Um, so I, I talked to them about, what. tell me your picture, tell me what's happening, and tell me how you're coping with it. And this is not... Um, 
this is not a doom and gloom crowd. You know, this is, this is sort of good Midwestern folks, and they're like, well, figure something out, okay? So um, flat budgets are not great news, and typically these guys were getting three, four, five, six, eight percent um, every year, and that's not happening anymore. Um, sometimes they could put out their hand and, and make a really good case for inflation. Inflation's not very interesting to administration anymore. Um, they, just, they just don't see that as a really viable argument. So this is really unlikely to change. And they do have endowment monies, of course. These are big universities, so the libraries do have endowment monies. But what you hear is there's real restrictions um, on a lot of library endowment money. They don't have a lot of freedom and flexibility. If you got, got monies to collect you know, um, material published in Russian post-World War II, and that's what the endowment's for, that's what you got to spend it for. So um, ultimately what's happening is it, it's making less room in the system for them to buy new things, to take risks, to expand or broaden what they're doing. They're, they're just coping with how do we meet the needs of what we have right now. Um, and they're not collecting as comprehensively as they used to be able to. So money's tight, and members of the library community are increasingly being asked to take on more responsibilities in different roles. This is a problem. This, this is hard to deal with. Um, monies have to go very far when you're working across comprehensive universities. Um, many, many doctoral programs that have to be supported. And um, increasingly a demand for new kinds of services in the university. Libraries are being looked to, um, to support all kinds of partnerships across the university. They're looking um, to repurpose staff who typically used to work in things like we used to call technical services, although we don't call that anymore, or cataloging or acquisitions. So they're, they're doing all kinds of new things. They're doing publishing, as you know, in some cases. They're doing data curation. They're doing all kinds of consulting with faculty about their rights management and the persistence of their data. So um, we, I've, I won't say we're doing be, being asked to do more with less. I think it's just that we're being asked to do more and we're having to repurpose a lot of things that we used to do. We're going to have to do, do things differently. Amy Friedlander the Acting Deputy Division Director in the Division of Advanced Cyber Infrastructure at the Directorate for Computer and Information Science and Engineering at the National Science Foundation, made the point more broadly. I think we have major issues in the way results will be communicated, what gets communicated, and of course, who is responsible for maintaining the scholarly record. Historically, that has been largely the creation of the record was the role of the publisher, the curation of the record was largely the role of the libraries. Those distinctions aren't working that well for us anymore, and we have to work, renegotiate roles and responsibilities. These blending distinctions could create challenges across the communities engaged in scholarly and scientific communication. That scenario would be deeply undesirable. Here's Fred Dilla, the CEO Emeritus of the American Institute of Physics, talking about his experience across a range of different roles within the research and research communication systems, and what he sees as the danger of distance between the publishing, researcher, and library communities. So I came in to AIP as, uh, after three decades of being a practicing scientist. Well, what did that mean? I published or perished, right? <laughs> so I wrote a lot of articles. I reviewed a lot of articles. I was asked to be on editorial boards of journals. And I was a society president for a while. So I thought I knew all about publishing. When I got to AIP, I realized I knew nothing about publishing. But one factoid really bothered me. Uh, when I was a working scientist, 
um, one of my best collaborators was my librarian at the three institutions I did my career at. And I walked into AIP sort of in the mid-stages of the open access debate. And here I saw uh, people on uh, all sides of the spectrum, publishers and librarians, uh, arguing with each other, uh, often on the basis of very little fact. And I asked myself, how long can an industry that has been around for three and a half centuries um, exist in a very healthy way if it was angering its best customer, the librarians? So what do librarians want from content providers? Well, understanding for one. So many times when we sit down with publishers on behalf of our, uh, on behalf of our institutions and we're talking about the next phase of our contract, um, a lot of them will say, what, what's happening? When is your funding going to be restored? Well, the answer is never. And, and then the next thing they say is, okay, well, I understand that, but our costs are going up, and so we'd like you to give us the little bit of flexible money that you have and then punish other publishers, right? Make, make them take less, and we'll, we'll take the same or we'll take more. It just doesn't really work that way. So the answer is um, we've just got to figure out a way together. We're in a long-term relationship, I think, right? We're going to keep keep buying content, we're gonna keep doing this thing year after year, year on year, you need to make money, we need to buy your stuff. We've gotta find some way to create some equilibrium in this marketplace so that we can continue to serve our mission. We're middlemen, right, we're a checkbook. And what could that equilibrium look like? Well, it probably means new models and new metrics to reduce the risk in purchasing. We are a, uh, a big deal kind of group. Our folks like the big journals deal. They were involved in many of them. The CIC negotiated many of them. Why do we like them? Cost predictability. Uh, we don't have to worry about whether or not a title's available, even for a really, really tiny a researcher who's in a really, really small environment and they're only gonna use one journal six times a year, but they'll have it there, so we know the content's there. Um, and actually, there's incredible staff efficiencies. So as our staffs get smaller in libraries and if in a big deal bundle, you're looking at 1,200 journal titles, who wants to un unpack that and go figure out which ones you should subscribe to? Uh, that is not efficiency in our system, considering the way that we have to buy content. So by and large, they're protecting bundles. Um, so that means that if an individual journal is out there by itself, um, and this is not advice, it's just the, it just is the case, it's at risk, because that's where the flexibility is to do cancellations and they're gonna look at cost per use for a single title. So a single title by itself just looks like an orphan, and they know what they're gonna protect, but they're gonna, it's gonna go under more scrutiny than even a really crummy journal that's in a big deal. Is that fair? Not particularly, but that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, and less likely that they're gonna to subscribe to new things. I hear evidence-based decision-making a lot, which suggests that librarians were doing a lot of anecdotal decision-making in the past, and that's probably actually true. Um, I'm not particularly proud to say it, but you know, when the hand, when individual selectors make, make what my boss likes to call idiosyncratic decisions about um, buying, that, that's a lot of what happened. But what we hear now is um, things like cost per use, really big deal, really big deal. Can I just buy an article on demand? 
rather than subscribing to the journal? What are my ILL interlibrary loan stats telling me? Or is there demand for a particular journal? I'm not gonna get it just because a faculty member said that they need it. I'm gonna have to actually see some, some kind of proof. Um, changing curricular emphasis. We know, we know now that um, folks are majoring in different things now. We're teaching different things, we're researching different things, and so we're not gonna be able to support some disciplines at the level we used to, because we gotta be able to do some new things. We've all got to do some new things. The research ecosystem is getting more and more complicated every day. The reality is that there's more research to consume than there ever has been in the past, and that makes the role of the librarian infinitely more complex. This has been a Wiley Society Executive Update. The Wiley Society Executive Update series is a production of Wiley's Society Services Program. At Wiley, we're helping societies make a difference in the world by working with them to expand the reach, impact, quality, and sustainability of their publishing programs. Music for today's episode was provided by Jason Shaw and editing by Dennis Velasco. The Wiley Society Executive Seminar from which today's episode was derived was designed with support from Allison Labati, Caroline McCarley, Kathleen Mulcahy, Swapna Pate, Elizabeth Welsh, and Anna Ayler. Anna Ayler also provided guidance on the content of today's episode, as did Kate Perry. Our editorial advisory group includes Andy Robinson, Sarah Fibbs, David Nicholson, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. Over the next few episodes, we'll tackle other challenges facing the scholarly and scientific communications landscape. So stay tuned. I'm Bill DeLuise, and this has been a Wiley Society Executive Update.